Welcome to Tom Bradford's Torah Class, an in-depth Old Testament Bible study that's brought to you from a Hebrew Roots perspective. This week's lesson is week number three, the book of Hosea, chapter one, continued. Okay, we're going to review last week's lesson a, a little more extensively than I'll typically do throughout our study of Hosea. And this is because I introduced you to some Hebraic concepts that are crucial for proper and, well, a revealing understanding of the prophet's words. And appropriately, the review I most want to concentrate on is the word, word. We'll also not read chapter 1 again, but instead we're going to take it one verse at a time. Now, we spent much time with trying to resurrect what the biblical Hebrew sense of the word word meant because it represents a complex concept. And it's not so easy for those who have been raised up in the church, even in the synagogue, or even as Bible students, including Bible college students, to grasp. Is it because it's just too hard to understand? No. It's because we've been taught to think about it so differently from what it actually meant that we must overcome what is lodged within our brains with superglue. I want to first give credit where credit's due. Much of what I'm going to explain to you comes primarily from the superior research of Karen Armstrong and Stephen Service and a few other scholars who also contributed to bringing this matter to our attention. The concept we're going to review concerns the Hebrew word debar, which is usually translated as the word, or at other times when it's used in conjunction with the phrase, the word of God, it's meant as a proper noun. That is, it's the name, it's the title of something. The biblical term, the word, describes an event or an action of God that also presents itself as being caused by a living manifestation of God. Now, don't overthink this. This is the same thing that can be said of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is also a living but invisible, mostly intangible manifestation of God that often precipitates events or actions or thoughts within us. The challenge for us is to understand this concept of the Word is mainly because of the standard everyday use of the English terms, words and writings. We see the term writings as consisting of a series of words to form sentences and paragraphs and even, even chapters of text, which of course is all true. However, biblically, that's not how it works. 
words and writings are not essentially the same things in the Bible. Now, let's try to make contemporary Hebrew scholars out of you. When the biblical Hebrew speaks of writing and texts, there are a few different Hebrew words that are used. Some of them include katab, miktah, and sefer. And we can also probably throw megalah in there as well among the more common words that are used. In the New Testament, the Greek words used for writing and for texts are grapho, grama, and biblos. However, in Hebrew, the term used the vast majority of time for the word is dabar. So the term dabar is quite set apart from the typical words for text and writings. In fact, the term dabar occurs more than 2,400 times in the Old Testament. That's a lot. Interestingly, the excellent King James Bible translators used more than 100 different <laughs> English terms to translate the various forms of dabar. So the highly complex and spiritual nature of the word dabar becomes nearly opaque to the Bible's readers. Now, I have little doubt that there was no intent to obscure, but rather it was out of not understanding Hebrew, Hebrew literature, and Hebrew culture sufficiently that this happened. Now, in Hebrew biblical writing, the key to understanding what I'm trying to explain is that in our Gentile English-speaking minds, words are thought of as written symbols formed from an alphabet. But in both Hebrew and Greek, the term words are only rarely references to texts and writings. Okay? In fact, in the Bible, words from God were not about speech that was to be written down as texts. Rather, they mostly described actions or events that were brought about by God. And the living manifestation of these actions, what Christianity might call a person of God, is the mysterious, the Word. Now, I've spoken especially in my extensive study in the book of Matthew about how the term wisdom, how it's used, how it's meant biblically. Because in modern Western terms, wisdom merely means to have the quality of having experience and knowledge and good judgment. Wisdom. But among the Hebrews and in the Bible, Wisdom was referring to a living entity. A living entity. Wisdom was seen as divine. 
It was seen as an actual manifestation, a person, if you would, of God. So the concept of the Word operates similarly. This is why I caution severely on the adopting of the Trinity doctrine as it's commonly understood within most branches of Christianity. That is, God is a strict triunity. The doctrine is that He is one, but at the same time He consists of three, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. In the various Trinity doctrines, there's not just one, Okay, adopted by various denominations, generally the idea is that whatever manifestation of God we might read about in the Bible, or that may exist, the sum total that is possible of those manifestations is three and only three. Thus, when we read of an action or event that is connected with God, we are to ask ourselves, which of those three caused that action to occur? Was it the Father? Was it the Son? Or was it the Holy Spirit? Therefore, for instance, when we read of that divine fire cloud that led Israel through the wilderness, we must accept that it was actually one of those three. When we read of the angel of the Lord, it could have only been one of those three. But that is an arbitrary, artificial, and narrow-sighted view that simply doesn't represent the biblical texts or ancient Hebrew thought or meaning. See, it's a church tradition. Okay, it's, it's not a biblical fact. I want to be clear so there's no misunderstanding. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are all actual, biblically defined manifestations or attributes or persons that together form the substance of God. I'm saying that the Bible describes even more manifestations or attributes or persons of God than only those three. The word debar is another one. Mysterious? It passes any argument of reason or science? Yes. But the nature of God cannot be weighed or measured. Now, I could probably speak entirely on this subject for a couple of full lessons, but I'm going to have mercy. The point is that we need to understand the actual nature of the term Debar the Word, as it pertains to the opening words of the book of Hosea, and not what has been traditionally understood. And to remind you, the opening words are, This is the Word, the Debar, of Adonai that came to Hosea the son of Beeri. So we're being told that a divine entity named the Word of Adonai, actually it's the Word of Jehovah, literally, sprang into action and made His presence known to Hosea. The Word was the divine vehicle 
that God used to send his message to Hosea, just as the Word was the vehicle God used through Jesus to bring the message of the kingdom and of salvation from sins, first to Israel, then to the rest of the world. Now, the next thing we learned was that some unnamed scribe assisted Hosea in writing this message down and recording it for posterity, employing a scribe, a professional writer, would have been a usual and customary way of handling such a literary endeavor in Hosea's era. The proof that a scribe played a key role in this book is because of chapters 1 and 2 that speak about Hosea in the third person, he, not in the first person, I. Now, we also discussed another important Hebrew term that dominates the early parts of Hosea, zona, zona. Now, zona is properly translated to English as prostitute, harlot, or whore. However, the vast majority of times in the Old Testament that the term zona is used, it's not meant literally, but rather metaphorically as an illustration. That is, it's a strong term. It's meant to startle, but also to describe, usually, God's view that some individual or his people as a nation was behaving as an unfaithful wife behaves. This fact ties in with the concepts of covenant and marriage in the Bible. Now, we read of a few covenants in the Bible that involve God. The first that includes the Hebrews is the covenant between God and Abraham that of itself led to the creation of the Hebrew ethnic group, and then later to Jacob, that's Abraham's grandson, who fathered the twelve tribes of Israel. Another and later covenant the covenant of Moses was made specifically with those 12 tribes. Now, in order to help Israel understand the relationship formed between them and God at Mount Sinai, the covenant transaction was likened to a marriage. It was not marriage. It's only that the institution of marriage that all societies embarked upon and the concept of it being inherently understood by everyone in one form or another was used as an easy illustration of, of sorts. Why? Because a marriage involves vows of faithfulness and of fidelity and usually of exclusivity between a husband and a wife, a male and a female, which are accepted in their particular culture. So, as an aid for Israel to have a good and memorable mental picture of their relationship with God, we find him being portrayed as a husband, with Israel as his wife. 
And since a prostitute is the opposite of a faithful marriage partner, then Israel not being obedient and faithful to Jehovah is likened to prostitution, and therefore Israel as a whore. Now, moving to verse 2 of Hosea chapter 1. God commands that a drama of sorts be carried out by Hosea to create a visual and a tangible illustration of what Hosea's prophecy is all about. Verse 2 says, Go marry a whore, have children with this whore, for the land is engaged in flagrant whoring, whoring away from Adonai, from God. Now, honestly, the complete Jewish translation is a poor one. And there are others that are more literal and more correct. The King James Version is a good representative of the more literal. Hosea 1-2 in the King James Version reads like this, The beginning of the word of the Lord by Hosea, and the Lord said to Hosea, Go take unto thee a wife of whoredoms, and children of whoredoms. For the land hath committed great whoredom, departing from the Lord. You know, it's kind of ironic that even though there are significant differences between the complete Jewish Bible version and the King James version, it's quite typical to interpret this verse as meaning exactly what the complete Jewish Bible says. And what the complete Jewish Bible says is that this wife Hosea is to find to marry is a prostitute. Thus we get so many sermons and commentaries that speak of this great love affair of Hosea and this prostitute wife of his. And in mercy, Hosea essentially overlooks this prostitute's profession, marries her, loves her despite it all, and they are all wrong. This marriage single purpose is to educate Hosea to understand God's will in a most graphic way. She is not a whore. Rather, she's a wife of whoredoms, just like the, like the King James Version and other very good literal ones explain. See, this is in Hebrew, this is a Hebrew idiom for the purpose of illustration. And as I explained, it is in nearly every case of prostitution in the Old Testament, it's an idiom and it's a metaphor. We have to transport ourselves into the 8th century BC and see things through Hosea's eyes. It's impossible the Jehovah God of Israel would so deeply denounce prostitution and the law of Moses and then turn around and tell his prophet Hosea to go marry a whore. Had Hosea felt he had actually heard such a thing, he would have instantly known this wasn't the Word of God speaking to him, it was some wicked spirit. It is true 
that the way the phrase wife of whoredoms is written is very odd and it's ungainly in English. But the concept is difficult to explain outside of the Hebrew language and Hebrew culture. And like so much else in most literature of any kind, and especially of the Holy Scriptures, we mustn't ever take a single verse out of its context, because immediately in verse 2 we get the basis for characterizing this wife Hosea is to take as a wife of whoredoms. It is for the land is engaged in flagrant whoring, whoring away from Yehovah. So once again, zonah, prostitution, is not used literally as meaning illicit sex, but rather metaphorically as meaning an unfaithful covenant partner. And I think perhaps the best way, it's not a perfect way, for us to think of this is having a meaning of having a spirit of prostitution. Having a spirit of prostitution. And we must also understand that the term the land, meaning the inhabitants of the land, the ten tribes of the northern kingdom, is to God being unfaithful to Him. I want to stress this. I want you to think about this for a minute. They are being unfaithful on what basis? On what basis? In other words, see, we may not think about it, but unfaithfulness is a relative term. It's a relative term. See, I can't be unfaithful unless there is a well-established principle or law or definition of being faithful. And clearly, as we move through Hosea, we're going to find that the principle by which God determines faithfulness and therefore also unfaithfulness is relative and according to the covenant that he had made with Israel five centuries or so earlier, the covenant of Moses. And as a result of this marriage, naturally there will be children, and they are called children of whoredom. That is, the marital offspring also have the same spirit of prostitution. And shortly we're going to find that the word even gives names to these children as symbolic, as representative of Israel's condition before God. And I'm going to remind you here, this is not talking about the two tribes of the southern kingdom called Judah. Only the ten tribes of the north. Thus, when we add in the children, we realize that on another level, what is being described using the term zonah, harlots, prostitutes, is not the personal activity, it's not the occupation 
of some individual, this individual woman. Rather, it's a category. It's a class of a person. So here's the major takeaway. This woman Hosea to marry is simply an ordinary, everyday, female, Israelite member of the northern kingdom. Neither better nor worse than any other Israelite woman. And the children that will be produced will be ordinary children, the same as all the other children of the northern kingdom. And this is the point. Essentially, the wife and the children are just random selections out of a group, Israel, Ephraim, Israel, the northern ten tribes, that represents the entire group. Hosea 1.3 So he married, he went and married Gomer, the daughter of Divlaim, and she conceived and bore him a son. So, we learned that the obedient Hosea does what the word instructed him to do. He found a woman, he married her. There's no reason to believe that he searched for an especially bad or promiscuous woman because there was no need to. Pretty much any Israelite woman he sought after would have fallen into this same category and class. Nor did this happen overnight, not even in a rush, because that's simply not how Hebrew culture worked. There would have been a proper courtship. The woman's father would have to be involved in a betrothal agreement. Likely a bride price would have to have been paid, and then some type of a brief ceremony held where the father transferred his legal authority over his daughter to her husband, Hosea. I recall that I told you previously that all of this took place over around a 35-year period of time. Now, the woman Hosea married is called Gomer, and there is nothing about her name that seems to have any symbolic meaning. About all we know about her background is that she was the daughter of a man named Divlaim, and we don't know anything about him either. Now, some, like Rashi, have tried to find a symbolic meaning in his name, but it's very dubious. In English, these folks, and Rashi says it means fig cake, with the thought that the symbolic price for Gomer's metaphorical service of prostitution was a fig cake. Now, honestly, this is a stretch that I can't subscribe to because the opening chapters of Hosea are not some weak attempt at a biography. So no useful biographical information is being passed here. Now, this hasn't stopped several commentators from trying to construct a biography out of sheer speculation, but I'm not going to waste your time with my own attempt to construct one that can't be any better. Now, the symbolic meaning we are to ascribe to this is that after marriage, Gomer goes astray, that is, after a marriage covenant is established, Gomer breaks it, and it is meant to be an illustration of Israel making a covenant with Jehovah and then later on going astray after other gods. So the story moves rapidly. Gomer becomes pregnant, a son is born. 
So this rather destroys the notion that Gomer already had these children before she married Hosea, as some have suggested. In other words, that her profession as a prostitute resulted in her getting pregnant and bearing children on three different occasions. Hosea 1.4, Adonai said to him, call him Jezreel, Jezreel, because in only a short time I will punish the house of Jehu for having shed blood at Jezreel, I will put an end to the kingdom of the house of Israel. Okay. God, in the form of the word, tells Hosea what he's to name this son. The name is actually part of the message that is being sent to the northern kingdom through Hosea. It is symbolic, but it refers also to something that actually occurred, and it would occur again in a different way. So, as yet another reminder from our previous lesson, symbolic doesn't mean something didn't also happen in actuality. Hosea actually married a woman named Gomer. Gomer actually had a son, and Hosea actually gave this special name to that son. And the name in Hebrew is Yisrael. It means El, God, sows. This name is actually an omen of fertility and blessing. However, as it's meant here, it's being used to recall something terrible that happened in the historical past. Yisrael, in English we're more used to hearing it as Jezreel, is more familiar to us as the name of a place called the Jezreel Valley in Israel. Indeed, it was a breadbasket, still is, for Israel due to its flat and well-watered and fertile soil. In its basic form then, the name given to Hosea's son was one of blessing. However, God used it to remember a place of murder. And this goes back to the infamous son of King Omri, whose name was Ahav. King Ahav married the equally infamous Jezebel. It was at the city of Jezreel that Jezebel arranged to murder a fellow named Nabaoth. And the story can be found in 1 Kings chapter 21, and it is worth reading in order to explain why God had Hosea's son named as he did. So, open your Bibles, please, to 1 Kings chapter 21, and we're going to read the whole chapter. That's 1 Kings chapter 21. I'll give you a second. 1 Kings chapter 21. Okay. A while later, an incident occurred involving Nabaoth the Yisraeli, in other words, man from Jez Jezreel. He owned a vineyard in Jezreel. 
right next to the palace of Ahav, king of Shamron, king of Samaria. Ahav spoke to Nabaot, and he said, Give me your vineyard, so that I can have it as my vegetable garden, because it's close to my palace. Now, in exchange, I'll give you a better vineyard, or if you prefer, I'll just give you its monetary value. But Nabaot said to Ahav, Adonai forbid that I should give you my ancestral heritage. Ahav went home resentful, depressed at what Nabaoth the Yezreeli, the man from Jezreel, had said to him, since he had said, I won't give you my ancestral heritage. And he lay down on his bed, and he turned his face away, and he refused to eat. Sound like a little kid? Well, Jezebel, his wife, went and said to him, Why are you so depressed that you refuse to eat? And he answered her, Because I spoke to Navaoth, the, the Jezreel man, and he said to me, Sell me your vineyard for money, or else if you prefer, I'll give you another vineyard for it. And he answered, I won't give you my vineyard. Are you the king of Israel or not? Asked the wife Jezebel. Get up and eat some food and cheer up. I'll give you the vineyard of Navaoth, the man from Jezreel. So she wrote letters in Ahab's name, sealed them with his seal, and sent the letters to the leaders and notables of the city where Nabaoth lived. And in the letters she wrote, Proclaim a fast, and give Nabaoth the seat of honor among the people, and have two good-for-nothing men sit opposite him, and have them accuse him publicly of cursing God and the king. Then take him outside and stone him to death. And the leaders and the notables of the city he lived in did as Jezebel had written in the letters she sent to them. And they proclaimed a fast, and they gave Nabot the seat of honor among the people. And then the two good-for-nothing men came in and sat opposite him. And these scoundrels publicly accused Nabot, saying, Nabot cursed God and the king. So they took him outside the city and stoned him to death, and then sent a message to Jezebel. Nabot has been stoned to death. And when Jezebel heard that Nabaoth had been stoned to death, she said to Ahab, Get up, take possession of the vineyard that Nabaoth, the Jezreeli, refused to sell you because Nabaoth is no longer alive. He's dead. And when Ahab heard that Nabaoth was dead, he set out to go down to the vineyard at Nabaoth, the Jezreeli, to take possession of it. But the word of Adonai came to Elijah from Tishbe, get up and go down to meet King Ahab of Israel who lives in Samaria, and right now he's in the vineyard of Nabaoth. He's gone down there to take possession of it, and this is what you're to say to him. Here's what Adonai says, you've committed murder, and now you're stealing this victim's property. And also say to him, here's what, the Adonai, here's what Adonai says, in the very place where, God, where dogs lick up the blood of Nabaoth, Dogs will lick up your blood, yours. And Akav said to Elijah, My enemy, yeah, you found me. And he answered, Yes, I have found you, because you have given yourself over to do what is evil from Adonai's perspective. Here, says Adonai, I'm bringing disaster on you. I'll sweep you away completely. I'll cut you off off from Ahab's every male, every slave or free in Israel. I'll make your house like the house of Jeroboam, the son of Nevat, and like the house of Baasha, the son of Ahiah, for provoking my anger. 
leading Israel into sin. And Adonai also said this about Jezebel. The dogs will eat Jezebel by the wall around Jezreel. If someone from the line of Ahab dies in the city, the dogs will eat him. If he dies in the country, the vultures will eat him. Truly, there was never anyone like Ahab. Stirred up by his wife Jezebel, he gave himself over to do what is evil from Adonai's perspective. His behavior and following idols was grossly abominable. He did everything the Amorites had done, from whom Adonai had expelled ahead of the people of Israel. And Ahab, on hearing these words, tore his clothes, put sackcloth on himself and fasted. And he slept in the sackcloth, and he went about dejectedly. And then the word of Adonai came to Elijah from Tishbe. Do you see how Ahab has humbled himself before me? And since he has humbled himself before me, I will not bring this evil during his lifetime, but during his son's lifetime. I will bring the evil on his house. Quite a story, isn't it? King Ahab and his queen Jezebel connived to take a vineyard away from Naboth simply because Ahab wanted it. They acquired it by murdering poor Naboth. And Ahab seems to have repented of this to a degree, and so God said he wouldn't punish Ahab and his family line for this atrocity during Ahab's lifetime. Rather, he would do it after Ahab died and his son took over the throne. In 2 Kings 9 and 10, we read about a man named Jehu who murdered Ahab's son and the entire royal family thus ending his dynasty. Blood ran in the streets of Jezreel as many died. Next, Jehu died. His son Jeroboam II took over. King Jeroboam was punished by Jehovah for the murder and mayhem that had happened years earlier in Jezreel. So why name Hosea's son as symbolic for what had happened so long ago? It was because of what Israel's rulers had been doing in order to obtain the throne for themselves by each murdering the sitting king and then keeping it by appeasing the people's want of worshiping other gods. God always blames the leadership of a group or a nation for what they're doing wrong. And he blesses them for what the group or the nation does right. Nonetheless, the entire group or the entire nation will usually suffer because of a leader's bad choices. As a brief aside, interestingly, it would be the prophet Elisha, Elisha, instigated Jehu's bloody overthrow of the dynasty of Omri. Jehu is sometimes depicted as a, as a good reformer of a corrupt and evil line of, of Israelite kings, but it was a relative good. God used Jehu to kill off Omri's dynasty in what was a sort of final straw incident 
when Ahab had Naboth killed. Later, God killed off Jehu's dynasty after his son Jeroboam II died. See, what we see throughout the Bible is that God will use mankind's propensity for evil against even his own people in order to punish them. Supernatural punishments like Sodom and Gomorrah, those are rare, very rare. Instead, God uses humans to bring about his discipline, and as we look around us in this chaotic period of history, in the 21st century, we must assume this is still happening today. Now, as I mentioned in our introduction to Hosea, Hosea began to prophesy during the reign of King Jeroboam II. This is why we read in verse 4 that God will punish the house of Jehu, that is, Jehu's dynasty, so it had not yet happened. But that's not all. One dynasty after another, one king after another, was murdered by the next. What, we, what each did not know and their personal lust for power was that soon this would end as God said it would in the last half of verse 4. I will put an end to the kingdom of the house of Israel. Forget dynasties. Forget dynasties. Israel itself would soon no longer exist. Hosea 1.5 When that day comes, I will break the bow of Israel in the Jezreel Valley. To break a bow means to lose a battle militarily. So in the same place that Ahab had Nabaoth murdered, and where the horrific destruction of the Omri dynasty by Jehu occurred, same place, at one of the most fruitful and blessed pieces of ground in the northern kingdom, Israel would fight a battle against a foreign invader, and they would lose. They would lose not only a battle, they would lose their land, even their right to live there. The kingdom of Assyria would be that invading enemy, and they would deport those conquered ten tribes of Israel to far-flung locations all over Asia and North Africa. Hosea 1.6, she conceived again and bore a daughter. And Adonai said to him, name her Lo-Ruchmah, unpitied. For I will no longer have pity on the house of Israel. By no means will I forgive them. Well, so now the story continues to pick up speed. As we're told that Gomer gave Hosea yet another child, this, this one a daughter. And while the son was given a name that actually was kind of nice, but for God's purpose it was used as kind of a dark history lesson. This daughter's name is Lo Ruchma, that means no pity, no mercy, 
or alternately not loved. That's probably not something any Hebrew normally would want to name their child. Now, as a man with daughters and granddaughters, I can tell you that love is so vitally important for them. So to be called unloved is perhaps one of the worst curses they could ever suffer. Now remember, in the Hebrew culture, a name wasn't just some form of ID. Names were carefully chosen. They were given to represent qualities and attributes of a person, usually hoped for. I can't imagine what this poor child thought of her own name that says her quality was to be unloved. It would have been devastating. But it is exactly this devastation of no longer being loved that God would curse the northern kingdom with. And as he says to end this verse, by no means will I forgive them. Translation. Israel's doomed. Doomed. Time for repentance has passed. There is some line in the sand that, that, that lay out there. Even for God's people. That when it's crossed, God takes action. Where's that line? I don't know. But I do know it's there. No amount of pleading with Him, no amount of promises to change were going to forestall what was going to happen to Israel. Were they still good and faithful? Were there still good and faithful God worshipers sprinkled among those ten tribes that had not taken up worshiping other gods? Of course. Hosea himself was one of them. What was going to happen was not individual by individual, but rather corporately. So all, righteous or wicked, all who resided in the north were going to suffer. Now, Hosea is so much more than just a history lesson. It's, it's necessary that, that we, as, as, as God's believers, understand how this same scenario may affect us or our immediate posterity. As evil keeps rising and it begins to finally overrun this planet, as the Bible says, it surely will. And wars and deprivations on a scale we have yet to see break out. This is not God's direct wrath. It will be a global punishment, but not a global wrath. See, there's a difference. Israel was not going to suffer God's supernatural wrath. They weren't going to be punished like Sodom and Gomorrah. Volcanoes weren't going to explode. Medias weren't going to fall from the sky and rain down on them all at God's command. Rather, God would simply step back. God would just simply stop blessing Israel with protection. 
and like a matador sidestepping a charging bull, he would simply allow Assyria to have their wicked way with Israel. And when the Bible speaks of end times tribulation, it is speaking of essentially the same thing. It's not God sending his supernatural wrath yet. Rather, he will just step back. He will allow the wickedness of the worldwide population to suffer at the hands of the most evil men ever to live and rule. I'll say this plainly. The so-called tribulation so often spoke about among Christians will not be an event of God's wrath. It will simply be a time of men's evil running rampant without the restraining power of the Lord. Why then, if there is not one thing Israel can do about holding off God from allowing Israel to be smashed and conquered and exiled and in this way suffer punishment, why is the Word telling Hosea all about it? Is Jehovah just rubbing Israel's face in it, so to speak? No, it's meant to warn those who have the ears to hear. It's meant for future generations to learn and understand what happened, why it happened. What is the expectation of the warned? First to repent, second to prepare. Therefore, I call upon us all to take a long look, not just at our individual lives, but also the character of the national society in which we live, perhaps even our various social associations, and honestly evaluate them. I mean, do you or they reflect biblically defined godliness? Or might you or they reflect the kind of church-created, man-made definition of godliness that pleases people and follows social trends? Or might you or they reflect no kind of godliness whatsoever? In all these cases, confession and repentance, while called for, is not going to stave off the inevitable. But on an individual level, during this soon coming period of unprecedented tribulation, you each, as individuals, can have eternal spiritual safety. Spiritual safety. So, should we be wise and prepare for what the period of tremendous tribulations will inflict upon us all without exception? Should we do that? I mean, could it happen soon? Could it happen tomorrow? Has not the COVID pandemic, as well as near global level catastrophes of the past, shown us how the seemingly improbable can arrive in an instant? Now, I, I refer to preparing in practical ways, as opposed to digging underground bunkers. Common sense driven, 
not fear-driven, not panic-driven. Securing food, savings, shelter, safety. An alternative energy source might be important in this day and age. There's so much we can all do to help and protect our families and our friends and even ourselves to survive. Surviving not in the sense of giving in to our anxieties and constantly focusing on the what-ifs of life, but rather of reasonable preparedness that once done, we can move on. This preparedness should begin by learning to live within our means and not on debt. That's meddling, isn't it? We can acquire emergency items slowly, steadily, but intentionally over a period of time. We can create a plan for what to do if the worst happens and be ready to carry it out. See, this sort of thinking does actually does not reflect a lack of faith. It's a demonstration of faith because God has told us unprecedented bad times are coming. We're just simply choosing to believe Him and take action. He has given us ample warning well in advance, maybe given us a taste of what it's going to look like so that we can do the best we can we can have the time to make rational and long-range plans, not just blindly believe that our human governments or charities are going to care for, care for us, even if they wish they could. Or that God will single us out, somehow supernaturally protect us from physical harm or financial disaster. That's just simply not how it works. See, preparedness. Preparedness is a fundamental biblical principle, both earthly and spiritually. Prepare. It's our God-commanded duty and our obligation to prepare on both of those levels. So while we are preparing on a physical level, we must also be preparing on a spiritual level by seeking God and His truth and living it out. Further, we are to take this preparedness message to others, not hoard it. All of this is what Hosea is to relay and to demonstrate to these doomed people of the northern kingdom by means of his odd family dynamics. Hosea 1.7 But I will pity the house of Judah. I will save them, not by bow, sword, battle, horses, or cavalry, but by Adonai their God. See, it's quite common among Bible scholars to say that some editor added this verse far time later because the stream of thought of the narrative gets interrupted. I find that to be quite ingenuous. And it's merely part of an ongoing effort, even within some areas of Christianity, to discredit the accuracy and truth of the Bible. The style 
of the writing. And what's being communicated fits nicely with verse 7. The issue is most important for an Israelite living in the north to hear. It is that there is a backdoor escape route if they will but take it when the time comes. They can flee to the south, but it takes faith to believe the warning. It takes faith to take action versus hoping upon hope that what God says is going to happen won't. Or deciding they'll just accept whatever fate befalls them with a fatalistic attitude. They know that if they do flee, they will have to humble themselves and adapt to the government and the religious system of Judah in order for them to be welcomed. Now further, in rather typical Hebrew literary style that actually involves a bit of poetry, when the word communicates to Hosea that God will have pity on the house of Judah, the southern kingdom, there's a play on words taking place here. The previous verse said God would have no pity, lo racham, on the house of Israel, the northern kingdom, but will have pity, racham, on the house of Judah. So whatever the translation of the root word racham into English, it might be, mercy, love, pity, God is going to withhold it from Israel and act in the opposite way towards Judah. Further, Judah will be saved, not because God is going to stand behind their military and they will be victorious in battle against mighty Assyria, while Israel is going to be defeated. Rather, it is that while God is pulling away His supernatural blessing of protection from Israel, He's going to continue to be a protective covering over Judah. In this case, for political reasons, Assyria decided not to invade Judah when they easily could have. Jehovah God of Israel, all throughout Bible history, has intervened in the politics and in the military as it concerns His people. It's no different today. No different. The reborn nation of Israel, tiny, as compared to almost all other nations, especially so to their surrounding those nations that are surrounding them, by any human standards, has no chance of survival. None. The day that the UN voted to recognize Israel as a sovereign nation of Jews, they were attacked by six armies of their neighbors. Israel had no air force and not much more than some handheld weapons. No nation came to fight beside them. Somehow, impossibly, Israel won. It makes no sense. And one of the most infuriating and shameful things that ever happened to Egypt, Syria, Jordan, Lebanon, Iraq, and Saudi Arabia that actually set aside their own considerable differences for a few days in order to bring their combined military might 
against a nation of about 500,000 people at that time. This defeat has continued to echo at least among some of those nations ever since, and it's only strengthened their resolve to regain their honor by pushing Israel into the Mediterranean. How could such an improbable thing have happened? It was because just as God had protected first, united Israel, and then the two kingdoms of Israel and Judah for so long, defeat, no matter how mighty the opposing force, was impossible. That proposition had come to an end for the ten tribes of the north. But about 130 years later, the same would happen for Judah and now the entire nation of Israel. All 12 tribes would disappear from the world's landscape for 2,500 years. So, Hosea with Gomer has now fathered a son and a daughter. Next, another son will be born and God's living message to the northern kingdom will have been given according to the names of each of these children. And that's what we'll open up with next time.